If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can go ahead and open with me, please, to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. And let me just say this through the songs that we have sung together today in the choir special. My sermon has kind of already been preached. Um, before you though, before you say, well, let's go, let me just say this. I believe that the, the music is supposed to make us hunger for the Word of God, not be a substitute for the Word of God. And if we ever find ourselves substituting anything for the Word of God, we find ourselves in trouble. So uh, we want to come to the Word of God today. Uh, I pray, as Brother Frank just prayed, um, in a way that we desire and we desire to o- obey it. And so when we think about this year, so 2018, first of all, oh, how it has flown by already. I cannot believe we're in May, about to be in June. But throughout this year, what we have been doing as a faith family, we've been going back and forth between two sermon series. I won't say we've been going seamlessly through them, but definitely purposefully um, through two different sermon series. The first is Dangerous Prayers, where we've been looking at dangerous prayers that we pray, that we believe um, have the opportunity as we pray them for God to unleash something God-sized in us and through us. We spent the last three weeks going through some dangerous prayers. Brother Mike, three weeks ago, um, preached, use me, um, then help me. And then last week, Brother Jordan preached, lead me. So we've been just kind of walking through those. But this morning, I want to welcome you back to our series in the Apostles' Creed. We're now at week 11 of a 13-week series where we are looking at the Apostles' Creed, what is the oldest um, of all the Christian creeds. And what we say is that even though this creed um, was not written by the apostles, it is a summary of everything they believed and everything they taught. So when we come to this series, we are basically realizing what it is that unites us together, the beliefs that unite us together as the people of God. And just a little recap of where we have been. You know, throughout this series, we have not preached the creed. and Instead, we have used the creed to point us um, to the Word of God. As we have said, creeds have no authority or hold no authority in and of themselves, but the creeds do point us to the authority of God's Word which does have all the authority. What we have said is the Apostles' Creed is like the moon. So the moon has no light in and of itself. The only thing the moon does is reflect the light of the sun. The sun has all the light, all the power. The moon reflects that. In the same way, the the creed reflects the Word of God. The Word has all the power, but the creed is reflecting um, the main doctrines of what we believe in the Christian faith. And one of the things I pray that we have seen throughout this series is that the Word of God has transforming power. It has power to show us who God is. As we've seen, this creed is a Trinitarian creed presenting God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, their work. And we have kind of dug in deep to those. But the Word of God also has the power to show us who we are as believers. As we saw a few weeks back, we are um, basically a universal people. And we are a relational people. When we talked about the Holy Catholic Church, the universal church, and we talked about the communion of the saints. And before we jump into the next phrase, the phrase we're going to cover today, I want just to remind us this morning what it is that we are a part of as the people of God. I want to show you the beauty of what God does in saving people. We belong to something so much bigger than we could ever wrap our heads around Um, So much bigger than we could ever imagine. So what I want to do is I want to take time just real quick to do a quick survey. So we're going to do a quick survey, and here's what I ask of you. 
I ask for your honesty and I ask for your participation. I'm going to ask a series of questions and I, I'm going to ask you to trust me. Knowing that some of you might not know me very well. Um, some of you might not know me um, well enough to where I have earned your trust yet. But for many of you in this room, I pray that I have earned your trust enough for you to know that I would never do anything intentionally um, to, to intentionally hurt or harm you in any way whatsoever. So what I'm going to do is I just want to ask a few questions and see where God takes us in this to show us the diversity and the beauty of what God does in saving a people. So I'm going to just ask a question. If it applies to you, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. So how many of you grew up in Christian homes? So how many of you grew up in Christian homes? So most of us in this room, how many of you did not grow up in Christian homes? So a few of us did not grow up in Christian homes. How many of you grew up in Christian homes, but you hit a season in your life where you decided to do it on your own, and maybe you played a little bit or partied a little bit, and then God brought you back? So a lot of us can relate to that season and that picture. How many of you came to know Jesus or became a believer before your 20th birthday? So became... So most, if many of us, how many of you became a believer um, after your 20th birthday? After your 30th birthday? After your, four, okay, we'll stop. We'll, we, won't, we won't keep going. But think about this, and let me just pause for a second, and let me just show you real quick. Most of you raised your hand, you were saved before the age of 20. Um, some of you might ask or wonder or even maybe even complain at times of why we spend so much of our efforts in teenagers and children. You just saw why. You, in case you have forgotten, over 90% of people who come to faith do so before 20 years old. So why do we spend our resources, our time, our effort in trying to um, grab a hold of the youth and the kids? You have your answer. You just saw your answer and you raising your own hands. But that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. Now let me um, ask you this, and this is where I'm going to kind of begin to, to tread really lightly. How many of you have a past that has drugs or alcohol in it. So a, a few of us have a past of drugs and alcohol, and, and, and this is where I'm going to stretch your trust a little bit. How many of you would say that you have some form of abuse in your background? So, so a few of us would raise our hands, and there, there's abuse in our, our, our background. And I want us to understand, to appreciate the diversity of life and circumstances that exist among the people of God. You know, here's the beauty, that God doesn't waste anything. God doesn't waste one difficulty that we go through. He doesn't waste it. We might think he wastes it, but no, he's able to use it to help for us to help someone else go through it. We might not understand why we went through what we went through, but God uses it. Let, let me keep on. How many of you were not born in the South? We're not born in the South. Okay, so a few of you, like the bumper sticker says, though you got here as quick as you possibly could. And... <laughs> We're glad to have you. Um, anybody born in a different country? So no one yet? Anybody born on a different planet? Anybody? Can, 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 okay, a few. How did I know? How, how did I know? But, but here's, here's the point. I think the point is we need to, as the people of God, recognize and rejoice in the diversity of what God has done locally and globally and calling all kinds of people to himself. God is not in need of just one particular set of circumstances in order to save us, meaning that you didn't have to be raised by Billy Graham in order to be saved, nor did you have to um, be addicted to drugs to be saved. 
the, the beautiful picture is God simply saves in every way and from every walk of life, God saves. Can we just praise God for that? That He is a God who saves us. And I'm so thankful. So with this kind of reestablished, what I want to do is I want to turn our attention to the um, third to last phrase in the Apostles' Creed, and that is the phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And just want, I want you to think about this. We're about to recite it together, but the only reference to our Christian life in the Creed, beside the first two words, I believe, are those seven words, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. In those seven words, we have the proclamation of our faith. We have the aim of our faith. And I say the aim because, let me just, let me just say this, and I've got to be very careful how I say it, but the ultimate hope of our salvation is not a mansion in heaven one day. That's not the ultimate hope of our salvation. The ultimate hope of our salvation is the forgiveness and one day the complete and total absence of sin. That's the hope. We are forgiven now, and one day there will be no sin forever and ever and ever. That's our hope. For the, the ultimate need of our lives is for us is not to be happy now and happy forever. The ultimate need of our lives is to be forgiven now, and we will be forgiven forever. And God in Christ has done that for us. God has forgiven us. In the words of Lewis Drummond, he says, Forgive, Forgiveness transcends finite human reason. The mere thought that one's entire sin account can be utterly eradicated is staggering. Yet it is quite clear that the forgiveness of sins strike at the very core of human need and experience. We need forgiveness. It speaks of guilt gone, remorse removed, depression disappearing, and emptiness of life eradicated. What power there is in forgiveness. And it all comes abundantly from the gracious hand of God. Let me just begin, before we jump into the word and before we jump into the, the, the creed. Have your sins been forgiven and do you know it? Have your sins been forgiven and do you know it? And with that question at the forefront of our minds and our hearts, what I want to do is I want us to again with deep conviction recite the creed together and then let the creed point us to the word of God. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to recite the creed together. Um, there, there have been a few little sticking points in the creed that we have addressed over our last 11 weeks. So if anything sounds kind of fishy to you, then please ask and we'll tell you kind of where we have come from um, with that. But we're going to recite the creed and then we're going to um, open our, our Bibles and read Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 together. So if you can join me in reciting the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection 
and the life everlasting. Now, if we can look at Exodus 34, verses 6 and verse 7 together, and it says this. The Lord passed before him, him meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, God, just amazed and thankful by the way that you have shown grace and mercy and forgiving us. Lord, we don't deserve or nor do we earn grace. The second we act like we do, we're no longer talking about grace and we're no longer talking about mercy. But we thank you that you are merciful and you are gracious and you are a forgiving God. Lord, I pray for anyone who is in this room or will be in this room who doesn't know you, that today would be a day of salvation and forgiveness for them. I pray for believers in this room, God, who, Lord, are walking now out of fellowship with you. And I pray that today you would draw them back to you and just give them forgiveness as they repent and turn from their sin. I pray for brothers and sisters who are walking out of harmony, Lord, with others, that today you would help them to forgive others in the way, God, that you have forgiven us. Lord, just do a work today among your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So one of the popular narratives I think that we hear in our world today, and if we're not careful, sometimes we begin to believe it, is that the God of the Old Testament is a mean, vindictive, punishing God, while the God of the New Testament is kind and gracious and forgiving and, and good. Now, some people have even kind of shied away from even ever opening the Old Testament, saying that um, the God of the Old Testament, we just, we just can't... Um, vouch for him anymore and he's just hard to understand and so instead we embrace the God of the New Testament which is Jesus because we can understand him and he seems very loving and caring and and kind and more palatable so we'll we'll take that and the problem with that thought and of course there are many problems with that thought uh, I'm just going to give you two. First is the greatest individual act of God's wrath that was on display did not happen in the Old Testament but it happened in the New Testament at the cross where Jesus endured all of the wrath of God that was due us. So the greatest act of God's wrath, not in the Old Testament, in the New Testament at the cross. But the, the second problem with that is if you look through the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, you see that God reveals himself, even in the Old Testament, as a God, as a God excuse me, who is gracious, merciful, and forgiving. Just consider the two verses we just read, which reflect a um, self-revelation of God, where God is revealing himself to, to Moses. And let me just give you a little background of what we know and kind of lead you from Exodus 1 all the way to Exodus 34. So the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. Um, they began to cry out to God. They were a people in prison. They were people who were abused. They were people who, who had nothing, and they cried out to God, and God heard them. 
And God sent them a deliverer. God sent them Moses. And so Moses showed up in Egypt and through some miraculous events brought forth by the power of God, the people of God are are set free from slavery. You know the story. Moses leads them by, or God leads them really to the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted. They walk across on dry ground. The power of God is on display there. They finally come to Mount Sinai. They receive the Ten Commandments and they enter into covenant with God. And then Moses ascends up to the mountain where he is communing, communing with God 40 days and 40 nights. And in the meantime, the people um, begin to wonder What's happened to Moses? They begin to say, maybe God has abandoned us. Maybe God brought us out here just to kill us. So, of course, they approach Aaron and they say, what are we going to do? Moses is gone and God has abandoned us. So Aaron's bright idea, instead of saying, let's seek God, he said, bring me your gold. And so Aaron makes them a golden calf. He presents this calf to them. And listen to what he says. He says, behold The God who delivered you and who brought you out of Egypt. There is no more absurd thing that's ever been said in the word of God than that. And the people worship it and go crazy over it. And just think about this. The great I am who has supernaturally almost broken all the laws of the known universe in order to step in and deliver his people from Egypt. This God, within weeks of delivering the people, his people have forgotten his goodness, forgotten his grace. They're questioning whether he can be trusted. They're questioning whether or not he is even good. They make a golden calf and they say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is the God who made a way out for us. And at this moment in the word of God, you would expect lightning and thunder, You would expect death. You would expect the valley they were in to be filled with blood, their own blood. You would expect God to say, you're all dead. I'm done with you all. But that's not what God ultimately chooses to do. Ultimately, God chooses in this moment to reveal himself in a way that highlights his love, his faithfulness, his grace, and his willingness and ability to forgive sins so with the short amount of time that we have left and i understand where we are the the short amount of time i want us to unpack get this two truths only two today not three only two truths concerning the forgiveness of god two truths the first is this we desperately need the forgiveness of god we desperately need the forgiveness of god what i'm about to say is the most important thing you will ever hear but it is also one of the most unpopular declarations of our day. And that is this. Your greatest need, your greatest need is not happiness. Your greatest need is not health. Your greatest need is not finances or financial security. Your greatest need is not even human relationships. Your greatest need is God's forgiveness of your sins found in Christ Jesus. That's your greatest need. You've heard this before, but think about it. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But 
Our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent us a Savior. And Jesus is the only Savior of sins in the world. He's the only Savior for sinners in the world. And all of this should bring to light who we are and who God is. Just think about the verses on the screen. The verses on the screen, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. So how many does that include? Okay, all. All means all, and that's all all means. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then think about who God is. Exodus 34 says this, the Lord, a God who will by no means clear the guilty. So we get a picture of who we are, who God is. We're sinful beings. The problem is that oftentimes we, we view sin as an abstract idea instead of a dangerous reality in our lives. Or what we do is we only, we only say that sin is the heinous acts of immorality um, and basically our sins aren't that bad. Meaning, if all you ever do is compare yourself to Hitler, you're going to think yourself to be pretty good. I'm pretty, I'm not a bad person. I've never done that. So I must be a pretty good person. But let me say this, the gravity of sin is heightened by who is the one who is sinned against. Who is sinned against? The one who is rebelled against. And brothers and sisters, you and I, we have all rebelled against the God of the universe. We have rebelled against the one who has made all things. And don't miss this, sin all of our sin is an attack against God. It's the belittling of God. It's cosmic treason. For every time we sin, think about this, every time we sin, and we all sin, every time we sin, the glory of God is not honored. The holiness of God is not revered. The greatness of God is not revered. Not admired. Every time we sin, every time the power of God is not praised, the truth of God is not sought. Every time we sin, the goodness of God is not savored by us, nor is the, the faithfulness of God trusted. God's promises are not relied upon by us. The grace of God is not cherished. And every time we sin, we are choosing not to love the person of God. The infinite, all-glorious God who holds every one of our lives in his hand is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, dishonored by every single one of us in this room and every single one of us in this world. All of us. Don't miss the nature of sin. Look back at verse 7 because in verse 7 of Exodus 34, we get these three pictures of the way sin is described. First of all, sin is iniquity, meaning that sin is the twisting or perverting of something that is straight or something that is pure. So iniquity means to twist, and we all twist what God has said, and we twist it for our own ways. Then sin is transgression, meaning it's the crossing of a line. I know this, and you know this. We have a five-year-old. If I draw a line in the sand and I say, do not cross that line, don't do it, it won't be a matter of time before he goes. He begins to test his boundaries, and before long, he's right over it. He's, he's over it, and that is us. We have transgressed. We have crossed the line, and then, of course, sin is sin. It means to miss the mark, and we have all missed the mark. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. This is who we are, but we also have to understand who God is. 
says he is the one who will by no means clear the guilty. Meaning, if you will not or if you refuse to come to God on his terms, there is no forgiveness for you. If you will not come to God on God's terms, meaning in Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness for you. God hates sin. He abhors sin. He despises sin. He punishes sin. He has waged war against sin. Yet, let me give you some hope this morning. You and I have not outsinned the grace of God. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that rises above all of our sin. You and I have not outsinned the grace of God, which leads us to the second truth, which is this. We graciously receive the forgiveness of God. We graciously receive the forgiveness of God. For every child of God in this room, there are two things that we must acknowledge. The first is that we are way more sinful than we could ever know. We're way more sinful than we could ever know or ever admit. Yet, simultaneously, we are way more forgiven and way more loved than we could ever imagine. Oh, how he loves you and me. Let me just remind you of Exodus 34. It's placed in the background or maybe the foreground of one of the most heinous transgressions against the holiness and name of God in all of the Bible. Yet, God, again, doesn't fill the valley with blood. Instead, he fills that valley with forgiveness and grace and mercy. Because he is a God of mercy and grace. Because he desires to forgive sins. God gives people time to repent. The Bible says that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. It's not meant to lead us to walk away from the Lord or act like we don't need him. God is merciful and patient and kind so that we will repent. Just listen to the words of Isaiah 55, 7. You can turn there real quick, but Isaiah 55, 7. Listen to what it says. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So who is it that receives the forgiveness of God? Now, of course, the ones who repent, but ultimately, according to the word of God, it is the unrighteous and the wicked. Just think about this. We don't normally, on a daily basis, refer to ourselves as unrighteous, wicked sinners. But God does. That's how God views the sinful race apart from him. One pastor put it this way. Picture that there are two doors. Both doors have two words written across the top of them. Door number one at the very top is written wicked and unrighteous. Door number two at the very top is written compassion and forgiveness. Now let me ask you a question. Which door would you choose to walk through? Every single one of us, give me door number two, Alex. Um, I'll take this door. I want the door of compassion. I want the door of forgiveness. But here's what the pastor says. In order for us to walk through door number two, we have to first walk through door number one. Meaning, before you and I will ever own the forgiveness of God, we must first own that we are wicked and unrighteous sinners in the, the eyes of a holy and righteous God. So we... We own our sin. We walk through door number one, recognizing our sinfulness. And then through that, we receive the compassion and forgiveness 
of God. And let me just lay this before you this morning. There is no iniquity. There is no transgression. There is no sin that is more powerful than the grace of God in Christ. He is. That should have got an amen. That should have got an amen from somebody. God is gracious. The only person that wouldn't amen is someone who doesn't think they're a sinner. So the picture is God is merciful. He is gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love. God's love doesn't stop. It won't stop. It keeps coming for us. And let me just, let me land here today. If I were to ask every single one of you in this room, does God love the world? I believe that most of you in this room would go, yeah, God loves the world. In fact, for God so loved the world. But if I were to say, well, does God love you? I believe that there might be some in this room that would pause for a second and maybe would begin to think, well, does God love me? Or they would say, well, I think God somewhat loves me or God will love me once I clean my life up. Once I get my life straight, God will love me and it will all be good. And let me just say this. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more than he loves you right now. And there is nothing you can do to ever make God love you less. God loves you. He loves you. If you base your perception of his love on your circumstances or how you feel, you are in trouble. If you want to know if God loves you, let me tell you what to do. Look to the cross. Look to the cross, for at the cross we see God's love for us. In fact, let me say this. I believe one day, one day in all of eternity, so one day in all of eternity when we look back on our lives, we're not going to be in heaven going, I can't believe God punished people in that way. I can't believe God did this. I can't believe God did that. Ultimately, what we're going to say is um, this picture of, I can't believe God loved me. I can't believe God forgave me. I can't believe God showed grace upon me. I can't believe God was as gracious to me as he was. Stand in awe of the fact that our God is forgiving. Have your sins been forgiven? Let me ask you a question. Are you living in sin? If you're living in sin, read 1 John. Read 1 John because 1 John tells us this. Whoever loves the world, the love of God is not in them. Or are you living in his forgiveness? Are you living in the fact that God is a forgiving God? Let me show you one more quote. And I believe this quote is so powerful because this is the one that Satan does so much harm upon upon us. And it says this, don't say, how could God forgive me for that? For whatever that is. Don't think God's forgiveness is a begrudging forgiveness. And with that thought, deny some of God's glorious love. And don't think that God's promises are only for other people. If this is how you are thinking, you must realize that your own sins, no matter how big, are not bigger than God's pleasure and forgiveness. Let me say that again. Don't miss this today, brother. Your sin, no matter how big you think they are, are not bigger than God's pleasure in forgiving you. Oh, God is a forgiving God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. Have you been forgiven and do you know it? And then let me just say this. I didn't have time to work this into the message today, but I believe I need to say this. If you, are a, if you are a forgiven person in this room today, if you have been forgiven by God, then you will be a forgiving person. There, there are so many who profess the name of Christ and 
man, they can talk the game all day long until you mention that one person that wronged them and then hate and anger comes across them. And here's the picture. If we aren't forgiving other people, then we are forgetting what God has done in forgiving us. We can't receive God's forgiveness while refusing to forgive others. We can't do it, brothers and sisters. Today needs to be a day that we understand how much God has done, what God has done to forgive us. And we need to also let it go. Give it away. Forgive others for how they have wronged us. All for the glory of God. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. And we're going to ask the musicians to come forward as we enter into a time of invitation and, and consecration. And let's just pray together. Father God, we thank you for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, we just pray, God, that today you would finish this time. God, for those who don't know you, may today be a day of salvation as they call upon the name of the Lord and are saved and receive your forgiveness for their sins. God, for those who are here today who know you and yet, God, are far from you, may today be a day of repentance and, Lord, receiving again your forgiveness and walking in fellowship with you once again. God, for brothers and sisters in this room today, God, who are walking in animosity or hatred against another, whoever that another might be or whatever they have done, God, help them by your supernatural grace to let it go and to forgive. God, not because it's easy, Lord, but because you have called us to and because you have forgiven us all of our sins against you. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen.